0: Welcome to the Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast, featuring Barry Dunn Healthcare Practice Group professionals and our expert guest discussing insights into contemporary as well as perennial healthcare regulatory, revenue integrity, general compliance, and risk management topics. My name is Robin Hoffman. I'm a Senior Compliance and Credentialing Manager in Barry Dunn's Healthcare Practice Group. I am honored to be joined for this episode by Regina Alexander, a principal at Barry Dunn, who established this podcast series, and by our very special guest, Anna Langerveld, PhD. Dr. Langerveld is the founder of Gene Markers LLC, and she serves as its president and chief executive officer. Gene Markers, which is a specialized independent laboratory based in Kalamazoo, Michigan, has been a valued Barry Dunn client since 2021. Before we get into our discussion, a quick disclaimer. The content we discuss in this podcast is based on our professional experience advising healthcare providers, facilities, and other organizations that engage Barry Dunn for compliance and other services. While we may reference specific government programs, Medicare and Medicaid policies, and regulatory guidance, we do not speak for any government agency or contractor, nor do we have the authority to do so. Nothing in this podcast should be considered legal advice. Anyone seeking legal advice on the subjects we discuss should consult their own attorney. We are so honored to have Dr. Anna Langerveld with us today for our discussion about promoting revenue integrity and a culture of compliance within independent laboratories. Dr. Langerveld is the founder of Gene Markers LLC and she serves as its president and CEO. Gene Markers is a specialized independent lab based in Kalamazoo, Michigan which offers both clinical testing and research services. Gene Markers clinical testing services focus on pharmacogenomics, commonly known as PGX testing. While Gene Markers has been working in the pharmacogenomics testing discipline for quite some time, as did many independent laboratories, during the height of the pandemic, they pivoted to adding capacity to support the high volume of demand for COVID testing in their community, and kudos for doing so. Revenue integrity, compliance, and quality are at the forefront of Gene Marker's culture and its business plan. Welcome to our podcast, Anna. We are thrilled to have you. Before we get into our discussion, could you share a bit more with our listeners about your background and what drew you to the field of laboratory medicine and research. Uh,
1: Thank you, Robin. And first I'd like to um, start off by thanking you all for having me on this podcast. And I appreciate greatly you thinking of gene markers when you think of compliance. So, you know, like Regina, I also started out on the lab, on the lab bench. I earned my PhD in neuroscience from Tulane university and, um, it, you know, worked for many years on the bench doing cell and molecular biology methods. Around In 2008, I started um, Gene Markers, and the company was started as a research service organization. And we did a lot of work for um, providing genomic biomarker uh, discovery type of work. And a couple of years later, in 2014, we decided to, or I decided to diversify the company's service offerings. We we're using a lot of the same methodologies and technologies that are used in clinical laboratory medicine. So it seemed, you know, at the time it was a, a natural, more of an organic progression to diversify, diversify our services into, the, into clinical laboratory medicine.
0: Thanks so much, Anna. That's greatly appreciated. As you know, laboratory services have been a long-standing area of interest for the Office of the Inspector General. The OIG first published a model compliance plan for the clinical laboratory industry in March of 1997, and it issued a supplemental guidance in August of 1998. As we said earlier, pharmacogenomics is a highly specialized niche within the independent laboratory service industry that many of our listeners may not be familiar with. So to use Regina's term, what is the simplest way to uh, have us not lose the, I love this term, non-laboratory? laboratorians. Can you tell us, Anna, what is pharmacogenomics and what type of patients are helped when their physician orders the types of pharmacogenomic clinical testing that your organization offers?
1: Excellent question. And I am happy to answer that, you know, in a very easy way. So first, let's start off by replacing using the word pharmacogenomics with PGX. That will make the remainder of this podcast like much easier to to work through. So PGX testing, quite simply, is a genetic test that utilizes DNA most often collected from a patient's um, cheek swab. So it's a non-invasive test. Um, When the sample is sent to the laboratory, we look for mutations in genes that are related to drug metabolism or other molecules that affect uh, medication's efficacy. So um, the doctors often utilize this test to help optimize uh, a patient's medications. So the test will be ordered quite frequently for patients who are not achieving maximum efficacy from, from their medications, or they're experiencing adverse side effects or you know maybe they're just taking too many medications and they need to streamline and understand you know which ones or which doses of the medications are best for them based on their genetics.
0: That's fascinating information and you certainly made it uh, very easy for me to understand. Thank you so much. So we understand that gene markers technical assessment was recently accepted, which is a really significant achievement. Technical assessments are required for molecular assays that are laboratory-developed tests. In order for you to receive a favorable review result, the assay must demonstrate clinical utility, fulfill the CMS reasonable and necessary criteria, and meet analytical and clinical validity standards. The intent of the program is to ensure that beneficiaries are receiving services that are of clinical value, and if these are services which are covered by a Medicare national coverage determination or a local coverage determination policy, that you meet the requirements during the technical assessment process, Anna, I understand that laboratories must suspend submitting claims to Medicare. So how long did that process take? Is there a value to the TA process for a lab beyond its clearing the way for Medicare reimbursement?
1: That's a really good question, or there are several questions you know, built into this one topic. And, you know, I guess I will start with, nobody likes to go through the technical assessment process. It's labor intensive and while you're going through it, um, you know, you're just really frustrated. It's long and it's, you know, um, very labor intensive. Um, It took us about a year and a half from our initial submission to our, um, you know, final um, acceptance of our technical assessment. And within that year and a half, we had two resubmissions. So we had to go back and perform an intended use study, and then we needed to, on our second go-round, needed to perform an orthogonal um, confirma- con- confirmation type of testing um, and before we received our, our, our final um, acceptance of our TA. So, of course, while we were going through this year and a half lengthy process, you know, we didn't appreciate it. However, you know, kind of like looking at it now in retrospect, you know, I think it was a really good experience and it allowed us to really analyze our processes and our procedures and, you know, not just our lab procedures, but things like medical billing and sales and marketing. And, you know, I think we really were able to refine our, our procedures and I think like any audit, um, there's always uh, a little bit of uh, uncertainty about what to expect. But I think that this process was um, is a learning experience. You know, we learned a lot and moving forward, I think you know we feel like we have a really good understanding of what um, what what types of tests or what Medicare is looking for in terms of medical necessity and clinical validations. So if we were to move forward with developing another test, we feel like, you know, really confident that we have a good understanding of what that process might look like.
2: And if you don't mind Robbins, I'd like to interject that the uh, achieving that 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 technical assessment approval is a significant achievement. Suspending billing Medicare. Really, you're not supposed to bill Medicare uh, for the uh, assays that are covered by the TA process uh, without achieving the TA. However, there's a there's a lot of, um, as you know, in the world of compliance, a lot of rumors. Circulate around that. There's a way around this. There's a way around that. We'll just go ahead and use this, un, you know, undefined code to bill it in the meantime. Those are all not acceptable solutions, and obviously G-markers knew that was the case, and uh, when they pursued it. But it it is a lengthy uh, process that we can understand why folks would be looking for a way around it, but no way around it.
0: Thanks so much, Regina. Spoken like a compliance professional and a lab professional. Thank you so much. Uh, Anna, when Regina reached out to ask if you'd be willing to guest star in this podcast focusing on the importance of revenue integrity and compliance in independent labs, you were very Enthusiastic and rapid in your response, yes. So, thank you so much for doing that. And, you know, as many labs struggle to navigate the complexities or as they view compliance activities as something that perhaps interferes with their revenue stream or their clinical mission, can you describe how compliance factors into the culture? at gene markers and how it impacts your business plan and your day-to-day operations?
1: Absolutely, and that's a really great question, Robin. So I I guess I will start with uh, compliance is really embedded into the culture and the mission of gene markers. Our entire value proposition is based on quality, integrity, and compassion. So you know those three three t- are the, those three things are the you know the base serve as the basic framework or like tenants of the entire organization, and you know compliance is a big component of quality and integrity for sure. So our day to day operations are guided by processes and procedures that are all you know uh, governed by compl- regulatory compliance um, or co- regulatory guidelines. So, um, you know, we've got SOPs in the lab, we've got um, uh, regulatory or, you know, uh, policies and procedures that guide our client services team, our sales and marketing team, our billing department, um, all of the, you know, everyone works under the guise of different types of documentation and policies and procedures um, that are, are based on, you know, regulations
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. I'm getting like a visual of a Venn diagram in terms of uh, clinical excellence, clinical quality improvement and compliance. It sounds like it's a great marriage of all of those factors at your organization.
2: Yeah, uh, I, Robin, I'd like yeah, to build on that is when, go when, when as a clinical provider, and this is, I've really, I, I don't know if it's whether I become more seasoned or just I get older and less patient with long explanations, I sometimes offer to our whether it's an independent lab or a medical practice or a hospital client, focus on the quality and doing the right thing. And the compliance will naturally follow with that. And, um, you know, the, the revenue stream and clinical mission are really important. Pay attention. You've got it. If you don't have revenue, you're not going to achieve your mission. We talk about that all the time. Um, but, you know, sometimes I think that particularly privately owned independent labs, some of them do get off track looking at that opportunity or that revenue stream. And it's just if you just go back to quality and the clinical mission, it really will keep it as your nurse star.
1: One of the things that, you know, guides us as a company too. you know, I mentioned compassion. And, you know, we always have to remember that there's a patient at the end of every test. And, you know, that also helps us drive, you know, our our objectives for delivering quality, making sure our results are accurate, and also making sure that our billing policies are transparent and, you know, compliant and fair. Thank you.
0: Regina, you're a seasoned compliance professional. You've had clinical experience for years in laboratory services. And I'm wondering, as you've sort of shared a little bit about your observations of, of working with clinicians and facilities, are there particular challenges that you've identified that perhaps a new compliance officer might face in the independent laboratory industry?
2: You bet, Robin. So firstly, the premise of your question assumes that the independent lab actually has a dedicated compliance officer or function. And while this is a completely valid assumption, for especially the larger national labs like your Quest and your cores of the world, many specialty labs, especially those in the startup phases, they lack the resources or may not prioritize the resources they have to hire a professional compliance officer. Just like any independent medical practice or a physician would simply be the same uh, analogy. Um, In laboratories like that, typically maybe a lab manager or director uh, that's on the clinical side will put on the compliance hat or someone in the billing or administrative functions may take the title in addition to their other other duties. I call that compliance as a side hustle and it's okay. Um, Often the lab engages a compliance consultant like me or us at Barry Dunn on an ad hoc basis to advise and support the function. There is nothing wrong, per se, with any of these approaches. A compliance program should be scaled to the lab's risks and resources, but it's important that they have a plan. A new or even a seasoned healthcare compliance professional without lab experience has a few immediate to-dos when joining an independent laboratory. That includes something that may be unexpected for some compliance professionals who like to stay a little bit removed from the operations, They need to get up to speed on the array of tests offered by the lab that they're serving and at least at a high level, the different methodologies that the lab uses to perform those tests. That's because payer policies, including Medicare LCDs or OIG guidance, they're developed around tests, panels and methodologies. By way of example, the compliance risk profile for the laboratory can change substantially if the government program integrity efforts shift toward or away from a particular service or methodology. We saw this happen in recent years with the scrutiny on those lab-developed panel sizes relative to services such as definitive urine drug testing, as well as genetic testing. So now it's my turn to give Anna a question. So Anna, I know from our work together, gene markers frequently navigates questions from your referring providers and physicians regarding differences in the documentation requirements or patient billing policies that Gmarkers has as opposed to other laboratories that may offer similar PGX services. How does your team navigate those type of questions from you know, your physician partners? I think of instances of labs that are known to waive patient cost sharing or discount policies or even whether the ordering provider has to sign the requisition. Those are all things that seem to come up, especially when the you and the sales folks of a lab interact with um, referring providers.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely an ongoing challenge that my team has, you know, like, as you mentioned, particularly the sales and marketing team that are out in the field competing with other labs. And, you know, we try really hard not to um, talk to the practices of other labs, but instead focus on our our approach and our, you know, our mission and, you know, and that is to provide, you know, services and services that are compliant. So, you know, like like we've mentioned, we've um we feel really confident in our policies and our procedures and, you know, just ensuring just communicating that consistently to, you know, all of the providers that we work with. Is um, you know the 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 only way to really navigate that, and you know sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. But you know, like if we're we're losing an account due to due for those reasons, you know maybe it's not the best partner for us.
2: Yeah, uh, I I think that's a, that's a more of a far sighted approach. Um, I thought of when you shared with me recently that you know your your team will reach out to the patient to confirm their cost sharing and have that discussion and see if they qualify for um, any kind of discount policy. And just that that extra touch where the patient doesn't get a surprise bill um, right then and there, that's that that shows a culture of compliance, because it's really, it's doing the right thing. So, you know, speaking of that, um, that, that cost sharing and that billing piece that nobody likes to talk t- about, um, as we know, most independent laboratories, including the really large ones, um, as well as smaller specialty, outsource a good number of their billing and coding functions to some degree or another. Um, You recently shared with me in a conversation that GeneMarkers is working to bring billing back in-house. What factors would influence GeneMarkers to take a different path than
1: other labs? That's an excellent question, Regina. And we've been offering PGX testing for just about 10 years now. And over the last 10 years, we've outsource billing, we've brought it back in-house, we've outsourced it again, and now we're at the point where we are we are um transitioning to bring our billing back in-house. And you know, really the the primary driver for that is transparency and compliance. You know, we we are, we're at the point where we're we need we feel like we need to have a little more control over um, what's being said to the patient? And, you know, as you mentioned, we've recently put, um, a really, what we feel is a really nice workflow into practice with respect to, um, billing for PGX tests, where the, after the test is sent into our lab, we will verify with the patient's insurance if it will be covered or not. And if it's not covered, we will call the, um, call the patient and discuss, you know, discuss this with them, and also discuss what um, options they have for billing, and then, you know, like, move forward with the test or not based on the patient's wishes. So, you know, this is a practice that we put into place, and by having a third-party biller kind of, you know, try to intersect or weave into this process, um, you know, is, is, you know, just felt like it was adding a lot of complexity. And, you know, we felt like we really weren't sure that, you know, our messaging would be translated. And, you know, after going through this process where our client services team was doing such an act, you know, would be doing an excellent job talking to the patient and, you know, building this rapport really, you know we didn't want there to be you know any miscommunication between what transpired and what the billing company would then be sending out so you know having a couple of misses on that you know made us really reevaluate our you know the op- our opportunity to bring things back in house and you know i think we have a really excellent medical billing expert on our team and you know i think without that that um expertise in-house it would be you know a non-starter but you know having that you know that builds a lot of confidence to you know build a team internally the way we that, want That,
2: that sounds, <laughs> you know that that that's that's really refreshing to hear but it sounds like again it's not just about the quality you've got the patient service ec- uh, element and you don't want that great service you give up front to call the patient about their coverage to be kind of uh undermined on the back end by what happens at the billing company I'll just also add because I can't help myself with what I do um, it it is not an effective argument in an audit from you know from a rack or a cert or from the OIG to say my billing company did it um, because every claim that goes out uh, the organization is still responsible for the codes that went out on the claim even if you have a third- party billing, Company, so um, there are there's a lot to be said for um, uh, developing that expertise in house. So I I know I personally appreciate that that move that Gene um, Markers is making. But yeah, so Robin, any other questions for us?
0: Sure, absolutely. As we're wrapping up our conversation today, I would like to invite Anna and Regina to offer our listeners maybe your top two recommendations for promoting a culture of compliance and revenue integrity within a clinical laboratory setting. So Anna, maybe you have some recommendations that you'd like to either put forward or reaffirm based on your prior,
1: your prior uh, comments. Absolutely. And I actually have three, if that's okay. Oh, please. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I thought about this and I'm like, I have three three top comments that I'd like to, you know, close with. And one is, you know, in, you know, starting any, uh, a laboratory testing endeavor going into this, you have to know that compliance is going to require a significant investment. Um, Investment in time, human resources, as well as um, cash. You know, it's going to, going to take a, take an investment. Um, The second thing is that whatever, um, it, it's very important to have everybody on the team invested in quality and compliance. So if everybody is not really, bu- doesn't, you know, everybody needs to, in a company, needs to buy in to that um, value proposition or that mission. Um, you know, like we say here internally at Gene Markers, in order for things to really, you know, flourish and be for us to be successful as a company, everybody in the boat needs to be rowing in the right direction. And, you know, that's certainly true of, you know, laboratory testing and, you know, compliance. And then the third thing I will add, you know, is sort of a hats off to to Regina and Barry Dunn and, you know, all of our advisors. <laughs> and, you know, especially for a small company that, you know, like Regina had mentioned, you know, we don't have a dedicated compliance officer. Um, you know, we're a small independent lab and we rely a lot on expert advice to help you know bridge that gap and fill fill the the knowledge base that you know we, we we don't have internally knowing that experts um like regina are just a phone call or an email away is very comforting and helps us maintain our compliance
0: thanks very much and regina do you have two or do you have three go for it my friend
2: well, I I'm going to violate the rules, uh which is shocking. Um first I want to thank thank Anna for those kind words. Um and I'll reiterate, I know I said it before, um can't help but have a special place um in my professional practice for laboratories because because I worked in a laboratory but in laboratory folks do make the best compliance officers ultimately. Sorry Robin Hoffman. Ah! But, um, but my, you know, my top recommendations, you know, are it's never too late to start. If you are an entrepreneur, um, that has, has started a specialty laboratory, a lot of those cropped up during, um, uh, the pan, the height of pandemic, uh, to serve community needs. It's never too late to pivot. If you haven't already invested anything into compliance and to just go ahead and start, um, that that's my first, if, if you're listening to this and goes, gosh, I probably should have done this two years ago. Start, start now. It's never too late. Um, there's plenty of publicly available resources, and of course, um, we're always happy to help. My my other piece is kind of just goes back, and I'm going to mention you again, Robin. You have a tagline you use on your articles called "Do the Right Thing," and it really is about doing the right thing um, in the clinical laboratory. Um, the laboratory discipline is highly regulated, um, and it takes the it takes a kind of um, dedication. Uh, to providing quality laboratory tests that are of value to the patients. So if you start with doing the right thing in that regard, just keep doing the right thing. And uh, that's my top two. There's so many granular things I could put everybody to sleep with, but that's what I have right now. Well, thank you so much.
0: And for those of you who are listening, Regina and I frequently have a little back and forth because we both came into the compliance professional through clinical pathways. So Regina came in through her service as an MLT. I came in as a community health clinical nurse specialist. So (laughs) happy, happy to be part of the team. And I loved... Thinking about, Anna, it sounded almost like you were approaching this as a village, if you will, that, you know, gene markers is a village. You all share that vision. You marry quality and compliance. Um, so, so refreshing to hear. And I would like to thank you both for sharing your insights today. We've reached the conclusion of our discussion about compliance and revenue integrity for independent labs and on behalf of Barry Dunn's Healthcare Practice Group, we would like to thank you for listening to this episode of our Healthcare Insights Compliance Plus Ethics Equals Integrity podcast. We welcome our listeners' questions and their feedback about the ideas we've discussed in this podcast, and we welcome your suggestions for topics we should consider developing for future episodes. Many thanks.